Thousands of years ago, every lake was like Great Bear Lake. So pure, you could lower a cup into the water and drink it. So beautiful that people composed love songs to it. So mysterious that many believed it was alive. Today, one of the ten largest lakes in the world, it is the last one that remains essentially primeval. So begins the article from last Sunday's New York Times that Larry swung by the office to deliver to me this past week. The only settlement on this eighth largest lake in the world, Great Bear Lake. The only settlement situated on this remote northwest ter- in the remote northwest territories of Canada extending into the Arctic Circle is the town of Deline, populated by several hundred indigenous folks from the First Nations tribe known as, I'm going to do my best here, Satutoin, meaning the Bear Lake people. They are as connected to the lake as their name implies. And for practical, cultural, historic, and even prophetic reasons, the Times journalist writes, they are determined to keep it pristine. Our own Thornton Creek here in the Thornton Creek watershed can't very well hope to uh, return to such a similar pristine primeval state as the Great Bear Lake. And unlike what happened at Bear Lake Watershed last year, UNESCO will not come calling to designate our watershed as a biosphere reserve. In the last two weeks, however, we've moved from learning to a deepening knowing. And this week and next, we continue the trajectory set forth by our centering proclamation toward loving and eventually protecting We won't protect places we don't love. We can't love places we don't know. And we don't know places that we have not learned. Now, it won't look exactly the same as it does with the Bear Lake people loving the watershed to which they intimately belong. And it absolutely doesn't need to look the same. But how do we grow in love of our watershed? For our own Thornton Creek watershed to which we belong by virtue of our shared community life, here in this place, our investment in this building and in other buildings here. And how, more expansively, might we grow in our love for our own Salish Sea watershed, which also encompasses all the places where SMCers live? How do we grow in love? Where do we begin? Well, if we return to the Centering Proclamation by learning a place, which leads to a deeper knowing, which leads to an organic loving. That's the idea. And in the stories that we have heard each of these three weeks from Kent, from Laura, and today from Marvin, the love of places known is clearly evident in the sparkling eyes and the lilting voices of our storytellers. Even a love for turkey buzzards. Love does seem to naturally flow from having learned to know and know a place. I wonder if there's anything to glean, however, this morning from our scriptures about how we grow in love for our watershed and for our watersheds. Having read from both Leviticus and Jesus's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, we are reminded that even as we proclaim and seek 
to follow a Jesus who radically upended notions of incarnational faith and embodied community. Jesus isn't really saying anything here content-wise that he didn't learn at Mary's knee. As she sang, as she spoke, as she lived the radical hospitality of her Hebrew faith. As Jason Biasi writes, The Sermon on the Mount here and elsewhere is a portrait of the very heart of God, one who loves the unlovable, comes among us in Christ, suffers our worst and rises to forgive us. Turn the cheek, give the cloak, go another mile, lend, love the enemy, because that is how God loves If you want to follow this God, he writes, fleshed in Jesus, you will be adopted into a life in which you find yourself loving this way before you even know what you are doing. What Jesus does, perhaps especially in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, is to meaningfully engage the scriptures that he inherited, scriptures that told of this persistent love of God, that he reinterprets and applies to his particular context. He reinterprets and applies the scriptures and what they have taught him about God's love in his own time, in his own place. Love of neighbor and love of foreigner and so much is right there in Leviticus. And we are tempted at times to just dismiss Leviticus altogether as a book. What use do we possibly have for it in our time and place? And in fact, this Sunday... In the three-year lectionary cycle of scripture readings is the only time Leviticus ever appears. And many years, Lent starts early enough that we don't even hear it. So it goes six years or nine years before the next time we hear this one portion of Leviticus. We're ready to chuck it. But there's some good stuff in there. A social ethic woven throughout an ethic that reveals the very heart of the God who is revealed in Christ Jesus. Jesus takes what he knows of God's heart from those sacred scriptures that he learned from his mother's singing and teaching and modeling and applies them to life under the Roman occupation. He adds in examples that are very specific to the context in which he lived, a time in which, for example, a Roman occupying soldier could compel anyone to carry his bag for a full mile. It's a very context-specific example of how living God's love might play out in Jesus' time and place. And so we, as followers of this incarnate one, go and do likewise. We have learned from Jesus how to take these enduring scriptures that reveal the desire and the heart of God and to reinterpret and apply them to our own context. And there's lots of ways that we can describe our own context, right? I mean, I think even of, for example, last Sunday when Caitlin spoke with those of us in Sunday school about her work of resettling refugees with world relief and how their work has been impacted by the shifting sands of this political climate. And I had the great honor, as did Pat Shaver this past week, of spending an afternoon in their offices meeting with several of their many staffers, all of whom are on the front lines of welcoming the strangers who have come to sojourn with us. Those strangers who have come to sojourn with us For whom, if we're to believe the biblical witness in Leviticus and then woven throughout, 
for whom God has a particular love. That's one way we could describe our context and reinterpret and apply these, this portion of the sermon. But in February, we're looking at our context in terms of place, a grounded in place in our bioregion and in our watershed. Now, having our faith grounded in place is not something new. Recently, I was remembering that one of my uh, favorite places in the Bible as a kid, one of the places that I turned to every Sunday during worship, because I lived in a context where each individual brought their own Bible to church every single Sunday. So when bored, I would flip through it. And inevitably, one of my favorite places to go was in the back, the maps. Anybody else go straight for the maps? Yeah, the maps were thicker paper than the onion skin, thin pages of the rest of the Bible. And they were filled with color and shape and names of places and landscape. Our faith has always been placed. That's not new. And this month, we are more deliberately placing our faith here. So in the spirit of Jesus, we interpret and apply this law of God's love to that context, within this culture of rootlessness and complete degradation of all creation. In the spirit of Jesus, we interpret and apply this law of love to here, to the Thornton Creek watershed, and to the entire Salish Sea bioregion to which we all belong. We apply it to these neighbors, our waters, to whom we belong. How shall we love these neighbors as ourselves? Well, this past week I heard at least one of you talking about um, maybe joining the data collection efforts of the Thornton Creek Alliance that we learned about last week. That's one way. I heard another couple of you wonder about how and when you might plot a trip to the Cedar River Watershed Center that we heard in Melanie's story, the source of our delicious Seattle drinking water. With its magical forest raindrop-induced drumming, that's the piece that got me. I got to go hear these drums. (laughs) It's awesome. And several of you, I know, already show up for regular trash pickup on these streets, which directly impacts the health and well-being of our own Thornton Creek. These are some of the ways we might love these neighbors, these waterly neighbors as ourselves. In the spirit of Jesus, I now playfully interpret and apply this law of God's love in a few other ways. You have heard that it was said Water is a precious resource to tend carefully and preserve. But I say to you, water is a neighbor. Water is a relative. Water is life. You have heard that it was said God created all of creation and commanded us to be good stewards of this gift. But I say to you, you belong to creation. You are not set apart. You must be replaced in your watershed, rooted in your place, your wholeness and well-being bound up with the wholeness and well-being of your bioregion. You have heard that it was said you must live on this land with great care. But I say to you, you will only truly live 
when you know that you don't live on any land, but that you live in a place, within a bioregion, woven into a watershed. You have heard that it was said, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And when challenged, the response came, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. But I say to you, I was an endangered steelhead trout and you did not restore my habitat. I was an endangered sockeye river snake, and you did not change your lifestyle. And when challenged, the response came, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my creaturely kin, you did not do it to me. As I mentioned by way of example a couple of weeks ago, I've already come to love, in particular, Piper's Creek, where female chum salmon wiggle their bodies and swish their tails in creating reds in the creek bed where they eventually drop pockets of fertilized eggs and guard them to their literal death. This already deep and certainly growing love within me will, I believe, lead me into the culminating call of our centering proclamation, protection. And we're going to turn our gaze there next Sunday. But for today... Having learned and come to know and love, today, love is enough. These waters are my neighbors. These waters are my kin. These waters are my life. I will seek to love them as I love myself. To the Satutoin, the Bear Lake people, Great Bear Lake is not just a lake. They are part of it, and it is part of them. No longer does this seem like a belief unique to their culture, writes the Times journalist. It sounds like a universal truth. The water from Great Bear Lake flows in our veins, too. As do the waters of the Salish Sea, the waters of the Cedar River, the waters of the Thornton Creek. These waters are our neighbors, our kin, our life. Thanks be to God.